Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, four men were driving across the country together. There was one man from Idaho, one man from Iowa, one man from Florida, and the last one was from New York. A bit down the road, the man from Idaho starts to pull potatoes from his bag, and he begins to throw them out the window. Well, the man from Iowa said to him, hey, man, what are you doing? Well, the man from Idaho said, man, we have so many of these potatoes in Idaho, I'm just sick of looking at them. Well, a few miles down the road, the man from Iowa begins pulling ears of corn from his bag and throwing them out of the window. And the man from Florida said, hey, hey, what are you doing? The man from Iowa said, hey, man, we got so much corn around here, I'm sick of looking at it. Well, inspired by the others, the man from Florida opened the car door and pushed the New Yorker out. (laughs) I'm not so sure that's a picture of unity. I mean, is it possible that amongst all of our differences against all the things that try to divide us, is it really possible for us to have unity within an imperfect church? I mean, especially right now during this election season, during this time of racism, during this time of strife, is it really possible to have unity? Well, I think it, it's possible. I really do. I, I really think that Christ desires His church to experience the joy of being and experiencing unity. You see, in his jailhouse journal for the advancement of the gospel, Paul again picks up on the theme of unity because Paul teaches us that unity will enable the gospel to continue to go forward. That's his passion. It's the gospel. That's his deep concern, and it should be ours as well. So really, where are we kind of headed today? Well, I'd like to tell you that kind of in a sentence, if you will. Today, I want you to see where we're headed is we're going to talk about unity is found in community. Unity is found in community. And what I kind of want to do is I'm kind of like the little fellow that was in the first grade. His teacher told her class, she said, if you need to go to the bathroom, I want you to raise your hand. Well, the little boy thought about it, and then he asked, so how's that going to help? Well, that's kind of what I want to do today is I want to give you some practical help for how to attain church unity. And really, the only place that I can find that'll help us with that is really God's Word. It's where we go for everything. So I wonder if you would rise to your feet with me today as we begin reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would love for you to take one from the Bibles that are there kind of around you in the seats, underneath those seats. There's copies of God's Word. I would love for you to have those. Our church would love for you to have that as a gift from us to you. But if you have a copy of God's Word, let's begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 2. Paul says these amazing words. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but 
with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would anoint me to help us all understand what your heart is today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we're kind of going to talk about today. And that is this, that unity can happen when we look to the sure source. Unity can happen when we look to the sure source. There in verse 1, if you will notice, there's a, a kind of a, a, a building up of this word if. He says, if there is this, if there is that, if there is this, if there is that. In the original language, this is better translated since. In other words, Here's what Paul's inclination is. He's not saying, if this is a possibility, he's saying that this is an absolute certainty. He's saying, since there is encouragement of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit. So when we talk about that, we're talking about this sure source. What is the first thing of this certainty that we really have, this first if, if you will? Well, we look to the incarnation of the Son. We look to the incarnation of the Son. He says there, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that word encouragement means to comfort, to, to come alongside of. It's used of the, the Holy Spirit when he says he's our paraclete, one who comes alongside of us. Remember, though, the context of this is verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, especially 29 and 30, where Paul says, hey, it's been given to you to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer and that what you saw in me is going to continue. In other words, it's in the context of suffering and persecution that Paul says, hey, do you have any encouragement in Christ? Well, we do. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus, who was in complete unity with the Father, prayed that his church would be one, as he and the Father were one. And then Jesus did something about that. He put on human flesh. He incarnated himself. He became like us so that the church could know who God was. But he did this by coming and ministering. He did this by coming alongside of us for the purpose of unifying us. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan, right? He saw the man who had been beaten, the man who had been abandoned by others. And that he came alongside of him. He comforted him. He bound up his wounds. He paid for his expenses. He encouraged him. Well, that is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's done for us when he put on flesh, he came and took care of our needs. He bound up our wounds. He paid for our expenses so that we could be one with him. We have to clothe ourselves with Christ and then encourage others. By looking to the incarnation of Jesus and doing the same, we can be unified. But then he says, not only do we look to the incarnation of the Son, but we look to the intimacy of the Sovereign. We look to the intimacy of the sovereign there. He says, if there's any encouragement of Christ, but if there's any consolation of love. Now that word consolation means to reassure. I'm sure you've had it happen. It's the idea of the feeling you get when someone consoles you when you're hurting. Like when you sit on your mother's lap and she consoles you when you're crying. It makes us think, though, the small voice of the father. Paul says that we know this kind of love from the Father and the Son. And as we experience being loved by the Father and loved by Jesus, therefore now, out of the overflow of that, we can love others. By looking to the intimacy with the Father then, by looking at how God loves us and how Christ loves us, that's the sure source. We can then what? Be unified with others in the cause of love. And then he says, we look to the indwelling of the Spirit. 
He says, we look to the indwelling of the Spirit. Then he says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. And you know what fellowship is. You like a good fellowship. The fellowship is really the sharing of privileges of or intimate association with a group. You see, because of the Spirit of God, we are all in one body and we're all temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit dwelling in us if we know Christ. So therefore, simply because of that, we are an incredible fellowship. The church is an amazing fellowship. It happened yesterday. I saw fellowship taking place, amen? That's what the body of Christ looks like because of the fellowship of the Spirit. And when we focus in on what we have together through the Spirit, there's unity. But then Paul says this, we look to the interaction of the saints. We look to the interaction of the saints because he says there, if there's any affection and compassion. Now that means a deep awareness of and then concern for another's suffering. If you think about this, the Philippians, whom Paul is writing to, had been experiencing this affection and compassion through people like Timothy. Timothy comes. Through people like Silas, Silas had come. Uh, Through Epaphroditus, and then, of course, through Paul. They had come and demonstrated much affection for the Philippians and incredible amounts of compassion. And that interaction of the saints is what unifies us. See, we are enabled to share the tenderness with others, the tenderness which we have from our union with Christ. We've been objects of this, and therefore we're moved by the Spirit to do that for each other. Jesus said, hey, they're going to know you're my disciples by the way you what? Love one another. So when we look to give affection to and are moved by and shown deep love for others, therefore the result is unity. Now the language is used of Titus when Titus is with the Corinthians. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 13 through 15, Paul says this, Because of this, we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse 15, His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. That right there is the interaction of the saints. And listen to me, that's why we can be so united when we have that with each other. But then Paul moves, if you'll look to verse two, where he says this, make my joy complete. Paul says, make my joy complete. That means to fulfill his joy. Paul, like Christ, deeply desired unity in the church. He knows that unity brings joy. And listen to me. It's not joy for joy's sake. It's this. When there's unity, there's joy. When there's joy, there's the advancement of the gospel. See, a church that's unified has joy, and they want to share that joy. That's what Paul is after. But did you know? Because Paul was modeling for his friends who were with him, like Titus and Timothy. He was modeling what it looks like for a pastor to lead a church. Did you know, and I'm not being self-serving here, I'm teaching you the word of God. Did you know that a pastor's well-being is tied to the unity of the church? Did you know when the church is not unified, it's the most miserable for those who lead it? It's more miserable probably for you. But listen to me, Paul said it here. He says, hey, make my joy complete. It is the pastor's desire of this church that we be unified because why? When we're unified, we have joy. And when we have joy, it's all about Jesus, amen. Paul says, and he says, referring to this, he mentions and picks up some some language that John had mentioned in 3 John chapter 4, 3 John verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking together in the truth. Paul teaches this elsewhere. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, But we ask you, brothers and sisters, 
to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. But watch now. Why? Live in peace with one another. See the, the tie. Paul picks up in Hebrews 13, 17, when he says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who would give an account. That's staggeringly humbling to me. So that they may do this with what? Joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful to you. See, when unity takes place, man, there's lots of joy and the gospel goes up. But when unity doesn't take place, what happens? Man, it's unhelpful to everybody. So Paul says, as I would say, let's look to Jesus as our source of unity. And as a result, we'll have joy and then we'll be able to advance the gospel as a unified church. Think about it like this. If I had a bag of marbles up here, they're, they're in this bag, there's probably marbles of various colors and sizes. And by their composition, they're packed very closely together, but they're, they're bound together by the container, which would be the, the bag. Now, if that bag is opened or ripped, marbles spill out in all directions. Why? Because there's nothing inherently within them that would bind them to each other. But if I took a pile of iron shavings and put them around a magnet, the power of the magnet would draw them all together. And if something from the outside would pull those shavings apart, the attractive force that is within them would reunite them. In the same way, faithful Christians who are disunified by circumstances beyond our control and even sometimes because of our control can maintain mutual attraction because Christ is in us, drawing us back together. And listen, beloved, here's what we need to understand, that we can have unity in community when we look to the sure source. Amen. If we just keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen. That's where we're headed. Here's the second thing Paul teaches us. That unity not only happens when we look to the sure source, but unity can happen when we lock onto specific signs. When we lock onto specific signs. But, but before we get there, I want to help you something with maybe parenting and maybe in marriage, maybe in business, maybe just being a friend. Watch this. You have to see that before Paul moves in verse 2, when he says, make my joy complete, that's an imperative. That's a command. He says, hey, listen, this isn't an option. You need to make my joy complete by doing this. But notice, Paul always does this. What he does is he describes our blessings before he moves to the imperatives. He's just talked about all that we have in Jesus, the same spirit, the encouragement, the consolation, the comfort, all that we have in Christ. Now that enables us to fulfill what? The commands. A lot of times we just want to start with the commands and forget love. It is love that drives us to obey. We don't always get that right, amen. So we need to focus more upon what we have in Christ and that will fuel our desire to what? Then obey. Here's the first thing though about the signs that Paul gives. He says there's a sign of mindful contemplation. Mindful contemplation. He says there in verse two, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That word literally means to set your mind on. Well, what is Paul saying to set our mind on? Well, that's a great question because in the context of what Paul is writing, he says it's about the things above, not the things here. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, because in Philippians chapter three, verse 19, contextually speaking, Paul says this, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. But then he moves in chapter four and he says, hey, don't think about that, but think about this. Finally, brothers and sisters, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about those things. You see, if we want unity and peace, what we set our minds on will always bring the intended result. Romans chapter 8, Paul begins to tell us a little bit more about that in verses 4 through 6. Paul says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. There it is, peace. See, we can have unity when we mindfully contemplate the things of God and the things above, not the things of this world. The Bible tells us when the church is thinking about the things of God, there will be unity. But there's another sign because Paul gives it to us, and that is the sign of mutual care. The sign of mutual care. He says there, but be of the same mind, maintaining the same love. You've heard that word before. That's the word agape. It's an unconditional type of love. It's when I make the choice of my will to intentionally put the needs of someone else ahead of my own. When I'm focused on loving people, I will always be led to give mutual care for them. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says this, be devoted to one another. Well, how, Paul? How would you like us to be devoted? Be devoted in brotherly love. Give a preference to one another in honor. There's your description of agape love. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's the mutual care that's a result of this love. You see, when our minds are contemplating things above, we're then moved by that to love for our brothers and sisters, and we mutually take care of one another. And the result of that is what? It's a sign of church unity. But then Paul says this, there's the sign of mass cooperation. There's the sign of mass cooperation because he says there, maintaining the same love, but united in spirit. The word there is really an interesting word. It happens to mean one sold. It refers to having the same character, the, the same affections, the same mindsets of another. Now listen to me. In this politically charged season, I need you to understand something. We may not always agree on those kind of issues, but I can promise you this, we can never let it divide us. We don't have to let it divide us. That's what Paul says. We can be unified in the spirit, because there's this mass cooperation that we put the gospel above what? Our nation even, if we have to. The gospel is what matters. We can be united in relationship between each other as brothers and sisters, and we can come together, and mass cooperation is what we need amongst the brothers and sisters. I remember reading the story. It's a kind of a fable, if you will. It's nowhere found in Scripture. Please understand that. But I remember reading a story one time that's told of Jesus and his disciples. One day they were walking along this very stony road. And Jesus asked each of his disciples to choose a stone to carry for him. John, it is said, chose a, a large one while Peter chose the smallest one. Jesus led them to the top of a mountain and commanded that the stones be made into bread. Each disciple by this time was tired and hungry, and he was allowed to eat the bread that he held in his hands. But of course, Peter's was the smallest and not enough to satisfy his hunger, so John gave him some of his. Well, sometime later, the story goes that Jesus again asked his disciples to pick up a stone and carry it for him. This time, Peter, having learned before, he chose the largest stone. Then Jesus led them to a river, and Jesus asked them to cast their stones into the water. 
Well, they did so and looked at each other in, in bewilderment. Then Jesus looked to his disciples and said, for whom were you really carrying the stone? Brothers and sisters, I wonder what happens when we remember that we're really doing this for Jesus and we decide not to think about ourselves, but to really mass cooperate with each other and give what we have to other people. I wonder what happens when it's really not about my comfort, but it's about the cooperation in the body. Yet there's one more sign, and, and I think Paul gives it to us this way. He says this, there's the sign of meaningful consistency. Meaningful consistency. He says there, you're united in spirit, but then intent on one purpose. Now he brings this back up about this mindset. This means to have our mindset on one thing, thinking one thing. Listen to me, here's what he's talking about. When you and I have our mindset that we're going to be unified, we can be unified. It's interesting. I think the idea is expressed perfectly in Colossians chapter 3. Bear with me as we read a few verses. Beginning in verse 12, he says this. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, right? There it is, the love first, blessing first. Now that fuels us to do what? Now do great commission living. Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Here's a hard one. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must what you must also do. Then watch this. In addition to all these things, put on love. Here it comes, which is the perfect bond of unity. Did you hear that? Let the peace of Christ, to which you were indeed called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of God richly dwell within you with all teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do you see that? Do you hear when we actually put this together and we begin to consistently live this way, then all of a sudden this thing really means something to us and church unity begins to be something that, that matters. I remember reading the story even this week about uh, Sir Robert Mayer on his 100th birthday. This elderly British socialite lady, Dana Cooper, fell into conversation with a friendly woman who seemed to know her very well. Lady Diana's failing eyesight prevented her from recognizing her fellow guest. And Lady Diana began to look at this lady more closely because of all the diamonds, and she realized she was speaking to none other than Queen Elizabeth. She said, ma'am, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I just didn't recognize you. You're not wearing your crown. Queen Elizabeth said, well, this was about Sir Robert and not about me. I decided to leave my crown behind. See, beloved, I wonder when we see the signs that others are leaving their crowns behind, I wonder what that would do. If it's just not about us, if it's really just about making it about other people. You know, I've lived by this quote for a really long time, but President Ronald Reagan used to have a sign on his desk that read this. There's no limit to what a man can do or where he will go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. I want you to think about that. You see, those are signs of unity. When we lock onto these signs, we have unity in community. When we do this, we have this unity in community. Those in community who look to the sure source, those who lock onto specific signs, and then Paul gives us the last thing. He says this, unity can happen when we live out selfless steps. Unity can happen when we live out selfless steps. Paul now moves into the nitty-gritty, if you will. 
I need to let you know, and you know this as well as I do, but unity is really hard work. It really involves dying to ourselves, and, and no one really likes that. I, I know I don't. So Paul says, hey, I want to help you. I want to be like the little, little boy wanting to, hey, raise your hand. Oh, how's that going to help? I want to give you some real clear help here, because Paul does. He says this, what is the first step? Well, we must crucify our own personal victories. We must crucify our own personal victories, because he says there in verse 3, if you'll take your eyes to the text. He says, do nothing from selfishness. Did you hear that? Now, you have to understand this word selfishness deals with my own selfish goals. The word there hints at, it's kind of elaborated else in scripture, when somebody's thinking about their own personal achievements, what will make them successful no matter what it costs other people, that's the kind of selfishness he's talking about here. It's referenced when we talk about Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. I won't read all that. I'm just going to pick some of the things. But in verse 13, it says, But you've said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Now, when he did that, think about what happened as a result. See, when you and I set our own personal goals above what? God and the body of Christ, nothing but destruction takes place. It's what happened to Adam and Eve. They set their own personal goals that they could be like God and know good and evil. They could be like God. They, they bought the lie. They put their own goals ahead. And Paul says, do nothing from that. You have to crucify your personal victories if you want unity in the church. If we're going to have unity, selfishness cannot exist. It's a great sin that brings great division. Selfishness takes advantage of others for my own personal gain. It builds me up while tearing others down. James 3.16 says it this way. For where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil thing. Think about that. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness. Crucify personal victories. But then... There's the next step. We must crucify not only our personal victories, but we must crucify our personal vanity. Our personal vanity, did you see it there? Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or what? Empty conceit. Now this word is having a highly exaggerated view of myself. Some of you may know it by a good old-fashioned word called hubris. And really this word here is the kind of word it's talked about over in Ecclesiastes when he says, that life without God is all its vanity. It's all vexation. It's all chasing after the wind. In other words, you can't really chase after the wind because once you catch it, you realize that it's nothing. That's what Paul says here. Conceit is, is really nothing. It's just vanity for vanity's sake. So whereas before selfishness deals with my, my selfish goals, empty conceit deals with my own selfish glory. And I can't have either. In other words, it refers to what makes me look good, not just that I can achieve more, but what makes me look good in the process, regardless of what it does to others. Paul says in Galatians 6, 3, he says this, if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he does what? He deceives himself. It's kind of like this, and, and I don't mean any ill will. I'm just trying to illustrate, but, but I, read, I read about a lady who went to a confession at a Catholic church. She told the priest, she said, Father, I want to confess my sin. Well, the priest said, well, what is your sin, my child? The lady said, well, it's my pride. She said, every morning I look at myself in the mirror and I realize just how beautiful I am. 
The priest said, this is not a big deal. That is not pride. That's just a mistake. We have to set aside our own personal vanity before we can ever have unity in the church. We must crucify our personal victories and crucify our personal vanity. But then Paul says the next step is this. We must cherish others' personal value. He says we could cherish others' personal value because he says there in the text, he says this, with humility of mind. In other words, what I have to do, let me just tell you really how this works. Listen to me, just pay attention closely. When I get a proper view of this right here, me, what's on the inside of me, when I really understand how selfless, I mean selfish and and flawful I really am, when I look inside of who I really am, When I truly grasp that, that's the only thing that helps me then really see the value of other people. If I am so self-absorbed, I will never have a proper view of other people. It just can't happen. So Paul says, hey, have a humble mind. For, For Paul writing in that day, writing to whom he was writing to, only slaves were considered to have humble attitudes. In other words, the Greek said, hey, pump yourself up and think more highly of yourself than you should. Only slaves are considered that they shouldn't think that they're more important. And see, here's the idea. Ironically, when we see other people as slaves, it's because we haven't seen ourselves properly, which prevents us from seeing them properly. The story is told of a pastor who was uh, officiating a funeral. When he was done with the funeral, he asked to lead the funeral procession as it made its way to the cemetery. So the pastor kind of gets out in front, he gets into his car, he starts driving and he's up there in front. He flips on his radio and he becomes preoccupied. He gets lost in his own thoughts and he forgets where he's going. And about that time, he passed by a Kmart and he remembered something he needed to pick up. So he turned into the parking lot and he's looking for a parking space. He happened to look in his rearview mirror and the whole entire party was still behind him. Here's what I'm trying to tell you today. If we don't humble ourselves and get out of our own minds, We'll end up going places we don't want to go and causing a whole lot of harm to a lot of people. You see, Paul continues to teach us another step. He says we must challenge our own personal views. Then we must challenge our personal views because there he says this, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. When I am humble and I have a proper view of myself, it's by then that I'm only enabled to regard somebody else as more important. If you ever wonder where the word hyper comes from, it's right here in the text. Paul says, in other words, what you've got to do is you've got to have a hyper view of somebody else, a, a more important view, that they have to be more valuable to you. You have to view them as having more quality. And it's in the present tense, which means this is something that I'm continually to do. I'm to continually be seeing and reckoning, considering others as more important than myself. I need you to know that's super hard for me. I don't know if it's hard for you, but it's really hard for me to do. Now, what this does not mean is it doesn't mean that I think less of myself as an image bearer. It doesn't mean that I think less of myself. It just means that I think about myself less. Peter says it a little different. He says in 1 Peter 5, Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. Paul says to regard somebody else. This means to give careful thought based on truth is what Paul tells us. 
In other words, it's not that I just have to pretend that others are important. What it really means is, is that after I give careful consideration to what the Word of God says about people, and I give careful consideration to what the Word of God says about me, it's by then, through that process, that then my eyes are open that I can truly consider somebody else really more important than I am. And that's so unnatural for us, isn't it? So unnatural. But, I mean, Paul figured out a way to do it because think about it like this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says this, for I am the least, excuse me, I'm the least of the apostles. Did you hear that? Paul is the greatest apostle who ever lived. And he says, but I am the least of the apostles. But then in Ephesians 3, 8, he says this, to me, the very least of all the saints. I mean, when you think about saints, Paul has to be up there. But Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the saints. Well, Paul, what else can you say? Well, thank you for asking. First Timothy 1. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Paul says, I'm least of the apostles, I'm least of the saints, and I'm the greatest sinner. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If that's how Paul saw himself, there's no way on planet Earth I can do less. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, the widest thing in the universe is not space. It's the potential capacity of the human heart. Being made in the image of God, it is capable of almost unlimited extensions in all directions. And one of the world's greatest tragedies is that we allow our hearts to shrink until there is room in them for little besides ourselves. See, we have to open our hearts to others to experience the joy of unity. And when I, all I can think about is myself, it's not good. I have to continue to challenge my personal view. Is this really about me? Or is this really about others? And here's the last step. We must consider what others think is personally vital. We must consider what others think is personally vital because in verse four, he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. To, to look out means to observe something. Paul is saying, hey, it's not that I want you to forget about yourself and go crawl into a cave as like some ascetics do and just starve yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. Paul's saying when you're considering serving for the kingdom of God, don't look out for your own interests. Examples could be like this, and, and I'm, I've just seen it in my time in church. I don't know that it really exists here. I'm just giving you some experiences of mine. What this means is, is that we apply that to like issues of worship. Right? I mean, I'm of a younger generation. I might prefer it one way. You might be of an older generation and you prefer it another way. But when we consider each other as more important than ourselves and not look out for our own interests, guess what? We can have unity. And see, if it's about the unity, then, then my personal preferences are set aside for yours. Think about that like ministries. Well, hey, I don't want to work in that ministry. I'd rather work in that ministry. And people begin to do that. Well, listen to me. I set aside my need and I'll go work in that ministry if it's going to help that ministry succeed if I really like this ministry. Or it could be even about ministers, right? Paul had other people choosing him and other people choosing other people. And it's like, hey, guys, forget about this. We're all one in Jesus. So how is it, Paul, that we take interest in others? Very practically, Paul gives us another way to do that in Romans 12, verses 15. He says this, his practical way to consider others more important than yourself. Just trust me. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If you just went through your day, I do this almost every day of my life, I can tell you. It means more to me than anything. And I just look and listen for what people are celebrating and where people need comforted. I have little time to think about me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate with people. 
Find out what's going on and celebrate with them. People love to talk about themselves. If you just give them a chance, they will. I'm just telling you, that's what people will do. And then if you find out that something's going on in life and you ask them, hey, tell me a little bit more about that, you can weep with those who weep. That is a way you put others above yourself. But Galatians 6.2 says it this way. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Can I tell you, church, because we prayed diligently last week, this church has got a head up on this verse. Can I tell you how proud of you I am? Listen to me. We prayed last week. Y'all remember? We prayed that God would save a man by the name of Kenneth Scott. Amen? Six days and three surgeries later, he's sitting right here this morning. Amen? Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to me. Some of you in the church brought food by. Some of you were doing all kinds of things. You were questioning. You were calling. You were praying. We were bearing one another's burdens. Amen? It is wonderful to put the needs of other people ahead of ourselves, isn't it, church? Doesn't it feel good when we do that? Well, I remember this, we have to consider what other people is personally vital if we're going to do what? Have unity. I, I just tell you this story because it just means a lot to me. It's kind of where I'm from. It might even be my own personal story, but I can't tell you whether it is or not. I neither deny or affirm the claim. But I'll tell you, a couple of years ago, this vacuum cleaner salesman decided he was going to go door to door. And he left the city to tackle customers in the country. They knew that'd be a lot of work, and he thought he'd take his big city ideas out there to find those out-of-the-way homes where he could sell his vacuum cleaners. So he went back as deep into the woods as he possibly could, and he knocked on his first door, and he nearly pounced on the elderly lady who greeted him. He quickly went into his sales pitch, pointing out the features of his new vacuum cleaner, telling him everything he could about the new technology that this vacuum cleaner had. And he talked so fast and he showed her so many functions, she didn't even have a chance to say a word. Well, suddenly, right in the middle of his sales pitch, he looked over and saw an ashtray sitting on a table. He picked it up. He dumped the contents of that ashtray on the floor. And his client was stunned. And he said this. He said, ma'am, with all the great confidence he could muster, he said, listen to me, if this vacuum cleaner won't pick it up, I'll lick it up. Well, she said, Sonny, you better get to licking because ain't no electricity around here. <laughs> if we're going to have church unity, we have to know what others consider personally vital. If we're going to have unity, we have to consider what others think is important. If not, we're going to have a mess to clean up. See, unity is found in community. Those that look to the sure source, they lock on to specific signs and they live out selfless steps. Jeremy, if you guys would come. Remember a long time ago, I was in a preaching conference and I heard a pastor share this story and I thought it was incredible, so I will share it with you. He said a rabbi dreamed that he had been given the opportunity to see both heaven and hell. He was directed to a closed door and informed that hell existed beyond the doorway. Well, as he entered the room, he was surprised to see a banquet hall that was set up for a feast. Everything was exquisitely pre prepared, but all the, the diners there, all the people gathered at the dinner, they were moaning and wailing in agony. In the center of the table was this mouth-watering dish of food, but each person had a very long spoon set beside them. The spoon was long enough for somebody to dish out the food, but yet it was too long to feed themselves. Consequently, they were unable to eat and they were shrieking with pains of hunger. And the horror was so bad that the rabbi asked to leave. Well, then when he opened the door to heaven, he was petrified because it was the same scene. 
Everything was exactly the same. The, the tables were all set with the finest of china, and there that mouth-watering dish of food was in the center, and there was the same long spoons all around. But only there in heaven, laughter replaced all the pitiful cries. Well, well what was the difference between the two places? Well, those in heaven didn't cry over the inability to feed themselves. They simply picked up the spoon and took the food and fed their neighbor. You, say, you could say this, that looking out for others is certainly a way to have a little taste of heaven. And can I tell you today, when we look out for the needs and interests of others and don't worry about feeding our own selves, we can experience a little bit of heaven and a little bit of heaven is called unity. So I wonder today, maybe has your heart been stirred? Has the Word of God maybe spoken to your heart? You want to say, well, what do I do next? Well, maybe we should do the book together this week. I want to challenge you this week to just really think about and reflect on the cross of Jesus. I can think of no better way in my own life to deal with my own sinfulness than to think about the cross. See, the cross reminds me of why Jesus had to come because I'm a wretched, vile sinner. Maybe I want to reflect on the glory of Christ because if I make it all about Christ's glory and not about my own, then guess what? My heart is going to be lined up with that and I can't help but want to serve Him to make unity the goal of my heart. Maybe another thing is I have to reflect on the Word. So you have to see, man, where are my selfish and prideful tendencies in life? And I mean, I need the Word of God constantly in my heart and my mind. Here's a great thing for you. If you don't have this, there's an app called Dwell, D-W-E-L-L. If you'll sign up for that bad boy, you can have the Word of God read over you in, in numerous different ways. If you're at work or if you're driving, it's a great way to have the Word of God constantly coming into your heart and your mind. Can I just give you a free piece of advice? The battle is so real, most of us don't have time to listen to our favorite music all day. We should be listening to the Word of God the majority of the time. I'm just telling you. And that's not a challenge. That's not like a make you feel guilt trip. That's just a revelation I've had in my own life. The more I think about the Word of God, there's greater chance I'll actually do what it says. I don't know if you found that to be true, but spend time then praying about how to serve others. I mean, really, do you think about that? Do you wake up every morning saying, Lord Jesus, how can I show more of your love to other people? How can I be used to serve you today? Show me how I can serve others. If you'll pray about it, I promise you the Holy Spirit will do what? He'll give you an opportunity. And then you'll have an opportunity to put somebody else above yourself, and then we'll experience unity. Can you imagine what happened if everybody in this congregation, including me and these people up here, if we left out of here and for the next week, all we did was put somebody else first. Can you imagine how it would change LaGrange? Can you just imagine? I mean, you're out there on the highway, right? And dude cuts you off and you're like, hey, that's great, man. You need to get to your workplace before I do. I mean, your, your need is far more important than me. Love it. I'll slow down and let you in rather than what? Let him know what you think of him with some sign language. I mean, think about it. You're standing in the grocery line and, and somebody's just taking too long and you're like, hey, Man, can I help you carry these groceries out to the car? Hey, sweetie, can I just set this over here? Can I help you? Can I help you? Look like you got a load there. Can I help you? Can I serve you? Hey, you know what? Your basket, I know you're just going to leave it here in the parking lot anyway. No, don't say that. Say, you know what? I'll return your cart for you. Right? I mean, I'm just thinking about practical ways. If you can imagine what happens when we do that. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you need a church home. Amen. That's a good place to be, isn't it, First Baptist? Would you recommend our church to anybody? I would. If I wasn't the pastor, I'd still be a member, amen. 
I like our church. I love you people. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to let God do what God does. Hey, if you need the Lord Jesus Christ today, we've talked a lot about him. I just want to challenge you to come forward today. Maybe you want to pray right there in your seat. You just want to turn your sinful life over to him and say, Jesus, I know that you died for me. You were buried for me. You were raised for me. I want you to come into my heart. I give you all my sin. And ask Jesus, you give me grace. If that's the desire of your heart today, if that makes any sense to you at all, man, we can talk to you today about that. I wonder, would you pray with me right now? Father, I love you and I'm so thankful for your word, how it's spoken to me this week, but how selfish I truly can be. Now through the power of Jesus, Lord, you can make me like you and the Father. You can make me one with my body. So thankful today, Lord. Would you bless us now with your presence and your spirit's leading? And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hey, you come today if you need to pray, you need to talk to us.